The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Going Global, a Business is Boring pop-up series brought to you by New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. NZTE wants to help more Kiwi businesses reach their global potential. Visit getthere.nz to find out more. And now, here are your hosts, Brianne West and Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa and welcome to our special pop-up series, Going Global, where we meet some of Aotearoa's most successful and inspiring exporters to find out the secrets to their success and bust some myths along the way. I've been talking to exporters for the last five years, including my co-host for today, Brianne West, who you will know as the founder and CEO at Atik, who are the global leader in the concentrated beauty bar space. They have stopped more than 20 million plastic bottles from being made, among a whole lot of other cool stuff. Thanks for being here, Brianne. What are we up to with this series? Thanks for having me. Well, Aotearoa is a long way from anywhere else, and we're a small market. So if we and our companies want to grow, we need to sell to the world. But something interesting we have seen is that not all companies selling to the world are identifying as exporters. And that while business in Aotearoa is now looking a lot more like the face of New Zealand, Exporting is still skewing towards that older, more traditional style of business. You know, older, more male, and more likely to be the primary products like meat and milk. So the questions we want to answer are, why aren't more of these amazing, incredible, innovative businesses we are creating, why aren't they exporting? Why don't the people who are exporting think that they are? And how can we change this? We're speaking to six great exporters over six weeks to find out, like our guest today, Kendall Flutie. Kendall describes herself as a reformed accountant who trained and worked at a big four company before changing tack for a purpose-led business to help increase financial literacy for students. Today, her company Banker helps over 200,000 kids across Australasia. Students who use the program come out 10% more financially literate, a number that if every kid across the country could achieve, would add billions to our national wealth and financial health. To talk their approach to business, purpose, and finding and setting your own path to export growth, Kendall Flutie joins us now. Tanakwe. Kia ora, thanks for having me. So good to talk to you. I know you call yourself a reformed accountant, I like that that term. <laughs> um, I've had a, got a few people at Atik who have escaped the big four. Mm. So how did you decide that you were going to do that? You know, what was the motivation and was it a scary first step to take? It really was. It was quite a daunting and overwhelming time in my life. I think the issue was I'd never really been intentional about what I wanted to do. So I've just been on this educational conveyor belt and spat at the end, out at the end as an accountant, right? Um, and then I get into the workplace and realize, uh-oh, I don't really fit in here. So as soon as I had that realization, I felt really uncomfortable being in that environment and was sort of looking for an exit strategy immediately um, after the first week of induction. But I, I, yeah, I had to take up a bit of time to. Um, <laughs> That's quick. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty bad, right? Um, to build up the courage 
to do so. And I think I handed in my resignation after six months. So that, that was quite a lot of time building up courage. That's a long time to hate something. It is. It is. It, it wasn't the, um, the, the best time of my life. Um, but look, I, I think I was also looking for a next step and that's where I was getting a bit stuck, especially being overwhelmed with big four sort of hours. Um, so I actually quit in the end with nothing, no, no plan B, um, which was probably the best thing I could have done for myself. So how did you launch into the business? How did you create it? Yep, so a few more steps between quitting accounting and um, what I get to now. Um, I retrained as a software developer and then I landed what essentially was my dream job in technology at this amazing Wellington-based tech company. Um, And then only then when I felt sort of like safe and in in a really um, supportive, empowering environment, did the idea for what I do now, Banker, come along. How do you describe what you do now and what's the kind of um, big vision of it? Cool. So I'm co-CEO of Banker and Banker is a financial education company. We build tools for schools to make kids better with money. Um, So we've got two interactive simulative platforms where kids can kind of just get their hands dirty pretending to be adults managing finances. So it might be as simple as a mock bank account or they may be investing on our fictitious stock exchange. Um, It all feels really real to them. So it's that experiential learning that will hold them in good stead for when they enter the real world. Such a brilliant idea and so necessary. (laughs) You are a purpose-led company but for profit, right? Correct, yeah. Do you find that... Uh, I know sometimes I feel that people don't think those things work, that you can have purpose and yet still be financially sustainable, right? And there's a bit of tension there. Do you come across that? Yeah, definitely. Some people think they're mutually exclusive, right? Mm. Um, And that's an education piece. But I think, I mean, I've been on a journey with Banker for a while now. And I think over the last few years, um, my exchanges with people who are confused has been decreasing. Um, but there definitely is a sort of construct in people's mind that you can't do good and make money. Um, so it's always a fun conversation to have. And is that something, you know, that, that you've found as well in the business, Brienne? Yeah, there's this weird uh, profit is evil. Um, I understand why people believe that. But if you're not financially sustainable, you're not going to mm. create any impact either. So it's something people need to kind of understand and get over. Yeah, I always wonder if more the question shouldn't be, what are you doing running a company that isn't thinking about delivering some kind of positive purpose? (laughs) Exactly. A company that is sole purpose is making money is a company that is outdated and will not engender customer loyalty and hopefully Mm. will be extinct in a couple of years, maybe 10 years. I totally agree. And I think your timeline isn't too ambitious, actually. 10 years. We're starting to see it. Um, Consumers and the next generation are demanding more than just profit um they, they want a bit of purpose and substance to, to the entities and organizations they engage with so yeah I, I like your thinking brand yeah, tell us about that purpose and what's the kind of problem with financial literacy that that you can solve mm, so financial literacy and illiteracy will mean something different to all of us individually it's a billion dollar problem globally if we think about individually we can be vulnerable to being financially misled Um, or perhaps we're engaging in negative financial decision-making, like um, getting in debt we can't service at one end of the spectrum. So there's a protection piece. Um, But actually, if we're financially illiterate, we're also not maximising our opportunities. We're maybe not thinking about, like, what does the future look like for me? How can I prepare for my retirement? How can I engage in in investing and other opportunities that are going to prepare me for 
for financial well-being really um so that all builds up at an individual level as well where we get these societal effects that um mean there's tax consequences welfare structures um good things that that are going to support everyone um and aim for equality but financial literacy can actually be tracked back to being that sort of root cause or lack thereof financial illiteracy, the root cause of a lot of systemic issues in our society. Um, so in, from, a, from a purpose perspective, banker exists to prepare the next generation for their financial future. We want to make sure that everyone feels prepared to engage in the financial system that we actually all have to enter. We don't have a choice, really. You kind of have to engage with money, even if you don't believe in capitalism. Um, there is some dependency on our financial system, and we just want to make sure everyone knows the rules of the game they're going to have to play. It, it's it's such an interesting space, hey, because financial uh, independence or you know being being kind of um, in a good position can lead to kind of like personal sovereignty or group sovereignty, mm. and also mm. you know can lead to independence for people who've traditionally earned less or not been in charge of family finances and stuff, and so people can uh, ha- escape bad situations or, or or choose life on their terms. Like it can mean huge things in a person's life, hey. It's not just kind mm. of like having a better bank balance. That, that's so true. Like when we look at um, the research and the evidence, not only unfortunately are wahine women and Indigenous communities and disabled people actually um, most at risk of financial illiteracy. We see patterns as well around how they're underrepresented or overrepresented in really negative ways statistically. Um, but I think like aside from that, when we think about the ability for your financial capability or stress or whatever you want to frame as the impact that can have on your health and your well-being more broadly. There was an interesting piece of research out recently that talked about the relationship between financial well-being and stress. Um, and, and that's going to not only affect you and your financial world, that permeates to like everything we do. So yeah, it's a really critical area that I don't think is necessarily easy to solve for by any means, but um it's what I get to spend most of my time um, trying to contribute contribute to. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, I was talking about, it's going to sound maybe a bit weird, but it was a few weeks ago I was actually talking to my dad about financial literacy and about banker. Mm. And he was saying um, he didn't even know what his dad made. They never discussed mm. money in their household. And that did translate uh, to, to his beliefs when um, they were raising me. Mum, mum and dad just simply didn't talk about money or finance oh, really? or anything um, until I got quite a lot older. And as a result, I think, I'm not particularly money-wise, and Atika's taught me a lot about finance, but without it, I'm not sure where I'd be. But you obviously spent a few years growing the company in New Zealand. How Mm. and why and when did you start taking the leap to the offshore markets? Yeah, so we did. We launched Banker in New Zealand in 2015, nationally throughout all primary schools here. Um, I would love to say that our foray into our first international market was super planned and intentional, but it wasn't. Uh, Funnily enough, NZT actually supported Banker to go and speak at a fintech conference in Sydney. We had limited aspirations for the market, um, certainly didn't have a a growth strategy there, but we pitched at this event and it was sort of a demo day thing and we ended up winning. Um, and in the crowd was a, were a lot of financial services firms. And at the time, our business model was revolved around partnerships, so um, corporates supporting us financially to do what we wanted to do and making the platform fully accessible in schools at no cost. 
yeah, as it turned out, there was an awesome company called NetWealth, their founder um, or MD, um, Matt, and he sort of came up to us and said, we love what you do. We love what you're doing in New Zealand. We'd love to support you to do this in Australia. Uh, and that was really the start of us turning over in our mind the possibility of exporting what we do here in Aotearoa in an Australian context. Why is it you have chosen to set up your company and the goals that you have are not traditional kind of like VC growth at all costs kind of approaches, eh? Can you talk us through a couple of the kind of um, the things that are important to you and different and special? Yeah, I think that's a really astute observation. Um, we have, we've been fully bootstrapped to date um, and that's allowed us to retain our values wholeheartedly. And I think for me at least as a social enterprise, I think it was much the intent behind that was as much about me learning to navigate the social enterprise space and how to, how to juggle that tension between between profit and purpose really like appropriately from my perspective, um, as it was just we potentially weren't in the right position to be engaging with VCs and, and scaling their business in that way anyways at the time. Um, so, so some of the decisions I think we've been able to make around supporting those communities I spoke about earlier who statistically are shown to be proportionately more impacted um, negatively through financial literacy. So like we've been able to um, to work with Kurakaupapa for our primary school platform for Banker um, Peakeka, which was a significant investment for us with, um, if you if you were just looking at profit maximisation, it'd be quite challenging um, to, to make that all stack up. But from an impact perspective, that was significant for us. And also as a, as a Māori founder, that was really meaningful and I think kind of essential for me to take the business on that journey as well. So that's just one small example, but I think it's the totality of how we've behaved over the last seven years that has meant we haven't necessarily had the ARR of a, a fast growth startup of seven years. Um, but we've had, you know, we've grown a, a stable revenue base um, that's meant we're sustainable um, and we've actually been able to hold on to our values and create the impact that, that we wanted, which I don't know, I found it really fulfilling and rewarding. And, and Brian, I'd actually be really interested in sort of your perspective. I know you've sort of done it on a larger scale and um, maybe injected some meaningful capital along the way as well. But yeah, I think that retaining the values has been really key for me. It's a question I get asked a lot, particularly um, so in October 2020, uh, we took on a, a big investor um, for a mm. lot of money and people naturally seem to assume that now we're evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm fairly sure we're not evil. We haven't compromised on any of those values, but it is a perception that once you take an investment, um, and I can absolutely see why, because we dance a dance with loads of VCs and PE funds, and they say all these wonderful things up front, and it, push comes to shove, you look at paperwork and think, oh, you are actually evil. All right, cool. Um, and where we got in the end in this, um, it's more of a family office than anything else who we who partnered with mm-hmm. in the end, and they're super-duper values-led. and. I have a lot more control than probably other people would do with my shareholding level. And um, that's the only way I would ever have allowed that to happen because you're absolutely right. You have to, those values are what you get up in the morning for, what your team works so hard for and what your customers and your, your clients believe in, right? If you change them, you'll fundamentally change your business and you're no longer creating that purpose and that impact. So, so true. Not worth it. Yeah. I love it. And we'll be back in a moment to hear more about doing it your own way, what exporting means today, and some insights that you might like to know if you're thinking about going global. 
We said earlier that exporting looks a lot more like the old traditional New Zealand business. What does that mean, Brian? I mean, it's bananas that women are seriously underrepresented when it comes to export. Around 28% of our goods companies in Aotearoa are led by women. But when we look at goods exporters, that number drops to 15%. What could it do for New Zealand if all of the cool, or even just more of the cool women-led companies in this country did get to exporting? Just imagine. New Zealand Trade and Enterprise wants to support more people to reach their global potential. So if you're a woman in business and this kōrero has got you thinking about what you have to offer beyond our borders, get in touch with NZTE. To find out how they can help you get there, head to getthere.nz forward slash woman. We're here with Kendall Flutie from Banker discussing exporting, which is something we all know New Zealand needs to do more of. But like that interesting fact that we found uh, kind kind of in the backbone of this podcast, is that not everyone who is running interesting businesses are thinking themselves as exporters and are getting out there and getting the help that they could um, to grow and do great things. And so, yeah, really interested to hear from you, Kendall. Like, do you consider yourself an exporter or or, or what do you kind of make of being an exporter? Mm, Do I consider Banker an exporter? Yes, but I think it's probably only something I would have confidently said yes to in the last few years or couple of years. Um, But we have actually been actively driving revenue from international markets for sort of double that. Yep. I don't know about you, but whenever I think about the word exporter, I always think, you know, milk, meat, (laughs) big, big conglomerates shipping stuff offshore. Um, Did you have any other preconceived notions about exporting, what it would be like, whether it would be really hard, whether it would be easy? Because I think a lot of people feel that it's almost out of reach and we want to, mm. you know, knock that down. Yeah, I think software is a really interesting concept when you think about exporting. You're totally right, Brian, in terms of the the milk and the wood and the very um, primary industry-focused exporting mentality. Um, but then when you just think about bits and bytes through a computer, uh, that's a totally different notion from an export perspective. I think I was always overwhelmed by the idea of exporting really intentionally. I maybe thought it was in the too hard basket. Um, so we, we never necessarily set that strategy and define that strategy from the start. We kind of just did it. And I'm actually glad that it sort of rolled out the way it did because I think, um, in a sense, we got to take baby steps. And by the time I looked at where we were, I was thinking, oh, well, we've actually achieved quite a lot. And given this momentum behind us, surely forging on is, is the right choice. Yeah. And what kind of support and help? I mean, you mentioned before um, getting support from NZTE to head to um, to, 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 to that demo day and stuff. Like, mm. what what kind of support have you found or how have you got past some of those barriers around exporting? Yeah, people. Um, talking to other founders who have been exporting, particularly those in the software space or in the market we're trying to grow in, has been really useful. Um, and I don't think I've always done that extremely well. Um, I think, again, in the last few years, I've really understood how to how to share value between founders um, and extract like learnings and understandings and actually apply them effectively to our business. It's it's been a real experience. Um, but outside of like my networks, um, our partners have been critical to our growth in Australia. I mentioned them before, NetWealth. They they basically fund Bank of Primary, our primary school platform, to be used throughout all Australian primary schools at no cost. Um, and we now actually have another product, which is in high schools, and that's user pay. So the schools pay, that's our scalable product. Um, but that brand awareness piece that our partners supported us with 
by entering into the market has been fantastic. Um, and they also were just there to answer what I consider the dumb questions. Like there's so much structural stuff. Brian, you'll, you'll know all about it. The, the legal, the accounting, like, you know, all the things that are just horrible. Yeah, a bit boring. And But you kind of got to get them right, huh? Mm, it's expensive if you don't. Yep. Yeah. And privacy, <laughs> when we're talking about software and kids as well. Um, so our partners were, it was like having a, um, a team a hundred times the size of we are as we are. And then there's the likes of the professional services, um, be it the ones you're paying for or the, or the government support. We've, we've been so fortunate with NZTE um, throughout our journey, particularly in the last sort of 18 months as we look to launch our secondary school platform across the ditch as well. They've, they've helped us be really intentional in a way that I sort of touched on before we, we hadn't been to date. Have you had to change a lot about your sort of base programs for the Australian market versus the New Zealand one? No, contextualisation for us. I mean, con- compound interest here in New Zealand is kind of the same as in Australia. So that the main contextualisation from a platform perspective is superannuation, KiwiSaver. Um, that's the big change and it's kind of a semantic one. A few nuts and bolts changing as well. Um, the biggest difference in our markets are curriculum from a product delivery perspective, ticking the right boxes for teachers, and then just all the market nuances, which are so hard to even, even if you invest in research and understanding the market, sometimes it's not until you get there and you're talking to 10 teachers, you realise, oh, that just really doesn't resonate with that audience the way it does over here. Yeah, the best thing, and I know it's not accessible to everyone, but the best thing you can do if you're trying to develop a market is go there. But of course, that mm. is leave people out. Has there been anything that's been kind of um, more challenging than you'd expected or any moments where you thought that this this might not work? Um, so New Zealand is a fantastic software playground from my perspective to a, to a point. We've got this really interesting population size, which means you can push an idea out there and actually the network's effect get it out there quite quickly. And we, we saw that in primary schools, like we've been used by a majority, so over 50%, 55% of all New Zealand primary schools primary intermediate schools. Um, that's awesome. Um, but then you've got a scalability issue in, in tech, I guess, that we've saturated that much the market um, so quickly. <laughs> that sounds like a great problem. Good like how cool, yeah. how cool is that? Like after being so, you know, because it's such a brave move, like you're you're mentioning right at the beginning, when you've kind of invested so much of your kind of um, self in you know, going down a, a certain path and then to leave that without knowing where you were going to go from the accounting, to then have your idea be in half of all schools and helping, you know, I, I assume half, <laughs> half of all kids to, to get ahead further. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. But the thing is, that's cool in a New Zealand context and you can like, um, like the network effect is really powerful and Brian, I, I'm sure you've engaged a lot on like speaking at events and trying to get the, the good word out there right um, and it's really tiring but it's rewarding and valuable I've just found in Australia cutting through the noise just it's a totally different beast and that strategy of organic organic growth and the network's effects it's a lot harder to ignite and that was probably the biggest learning curve for me I naively thought we could tra- transplant Probably a lot, a lot of national goodwill as well, um, brand familiarity. I thought we could transplant that into the international market, and boy, was I wrong. Hmm. Australia is an interesting market, and actually, I would argue it's one we find the hardest too. Oh, interesting. A lot of entrepreneurs from here just think you can shoot straight across to Australia with a cookie cutter product, but uh, there's not many that that works for. We found America easier, and uh, pff, I don't know why that is, but you're right. We, we struggle to get some cut through mm. at times, and it's, yeah, it's bizarre. 
I, re- I remember um, Dion Nash said something really interesting to me about Triumph and Disaster, his brand going into Australia, and he said, we put all our effort going straight to LA first because if you go to Australia from New Zealand, you're kind of like a sad cousin. But if you go <laughs> and you go to LA, you're this That's interesting you're this interesting <laughs> New Zealander. And then if you've succeeded at any at any scale in LA, then Australian things are really interested in that in the way that they might mm. not be interested in the New Zealand thing. So he was really purposeful to go, so I'm going to go and try and give it a nudge in London and LA before I give it a nudge in Sydney and Melbourne. That's a very interesting point. Fascinating, yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. If there was one, you know, for people who are listening to this who want to go out and export, they may be thinking, oh, it's a bit hard. Is there anything you would do differently or do exactly the same in your journey that would be interesting to other people? There are lots of things I would do differently. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we launched our primary school platform in Australia maybe in 2017, 2018 maybe. Can't, Can't really put a my finger on that timeline but quite a while ago so we have had a presence in Australia and been scaling over there for a while and tried to right some of those wrongs but our launch into high schools at the start of this year um, in Australia has been markedly different to that first experience and I guess we've been trying to apply our learnings so um, I've kind of had that second shot um, at exporting um, for for the first time again and I think one of the big things was that strategic piece for me and the support of the likes of NZT and a bunch of other people, people who can make sure that you're analysing the market from all angles um, and and taking the right operational first step. I think last time we were very partner-driven. This time, which is fine, that was the main source of our revenue. Um, but right, but at this stage, now we're driving revenue from schools. So that immediate connection means we're being user dri- we're user driven in terms of how we're engaging and entering the market. And that's been like a transformational shift for us. Um, it's sort of strategically dictated where we've invested our our resources, um, what sort of talent and capability we've grown within the team. Um, and also just sort of some of that, those key fundamental decisions that will set us up, up to scale later on have been completely different to the first time around. But that said, all of that said, while I, I think you should have a really solid strategy and get support alongside you, I do think it's all about the first step. And if you can just take that first step, whatever it looks like to you, you don't have to think A to Z, like what is A to B for you? Is it just shipping one product to one customer? If you can do that, I think it will really build confidence in those out there who think, this is too overwhelming. Totally. Break it into tiny bite-sized pieces. Like how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Yeah. So that first step is really important because you're right, you do then gain confidence the next one and the next one and the next one and all of a sudden you're a multi-million dollar exporter. It's that easy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like that that confidence and ex- experimental mindset. Um, like if I go back to when I first started Banker, it was just a series of experiments and majority of them failed, but we ran with the ones that, um, that actually worked. I, I think trying to apply that mentality with a strategic structure that brings all of the experience over the last few years that you've been developing and um, building your capability in Aotearoa, how do you retain that mindset but also apply your learnings? That I think that's been an awesome experience for me to go through that over the last 18 months. Ah, lovely. And as a final thought, what is the shape of where Banker is going? So you've got stuff happening in Australia. I imagine there are a lot of 
young people around the world who, if they were set on a better path with their financial literacy, could have better results for everyone. Have you got kind of um, goals to go further? Or is this something with, I, I really have loved the way that you've been so intentional to keep things at a size that you like. Like, yeah, what, 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 what's your current thinking? Awesome. Yeah, I think I agree with your sentiment. There are people everywhere who don't have the financial literacy they need to, to thrive in this world. And ultimately, Banker wants to support them, um, actually outside of the school gates as well. So we think if you missed out on financial education at school, then um, we're really excited about the opportunity to engage with those cohorts down the track. We have been intentional about keeping things maintainable, but at the same time, we've grown a team in our capabilities. So we think our breadth and our capability is, is broader than it has been ever before. So at the end of the day, we want to be serving um we want to be serving quality financial education on a global scale. And one of the big shifts for us actually happening right now, so it's been a bit hectic, is we are looking for capital for the first time and we're engaging um, with a few of the right people. So, Brian, it was awesome to hear your experiences that it, it can go really well too to take us to that that um, sort of that next magnitude. Good luck. That's an awesome journey to go on. Yeah, can't <laughs> wait to see where you take it next. And thank, thank you. you so much, you know, Tanakwe. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. So good to talk to you. Yeah, that was rad. Like, so cool to hear from Kendall Flutie there from Banker. And quite a different approach to exporting and to building a company. And it's been really cool over these last uh, six weeks to hear from all of these different people in all these different ways. But what kind of themes are coming through? What are we hearing? That's the amazing thing is we've talked to six different people with very different businesses, and yet there has been some really common themes. And I think my favourite has been being authentically who you are will still lead to success. You know, you're taught that you have to fit into a certain box to do business the right way, and these amazing entrepreneurs show that that's not at all the case. Be authentically who you are, and you have no idea where you'll end up. I love the way that that doing it on your own terms was different for everyone. Like, mm. it's not just kind of one way to be unconventional. So the way that Laura was building her business versus the way Karen Walker would approach things, there are themes there. But what I was really hearing was, um, you know, you're not going to find a how-to. You just have to get in there and, and do it. Just jump in, boots and all, and give that first step. For sure. Yeah, and taking the first step, that's the other thing we heard heaps, eh? Like, um, there's that idea that you just have to get started. And so for some people, it might involve getting over to the market and finding out more. But for others, it's like, just release it or just do an interview or just find the people overseas who might be able to help you and, and get in and learn. And it's not something where, you know, you suddenly become an exporter and you get like a badge or something. It's more something that you you just do and get better at and improve. Yeah. And the wonderful thing about Atara is how you can reach out to almost anyone or they will reach out to you, actually, and, and they will try and help in any way they can. You know, it feels overwhelming moving into, into becoming an exporter, but there is a lot of help out there. And it will often start with just an email, a phone call, a chat. Yeah, like once you get started, if you are finding that like it feels like there must be a better way, there probably is. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so there are people, you know, like NZTE, quite obviously, who are set up to help people exporting. And it doesn't matter if you're thinking about it, if you're just doing a tiny amount of revenue, if you're doing a lot of revenue, uh, they're there to help people who are selling things overseas. So yeah, get in touch and get involved. 
Thanks for joining and doing this for the last few weeks, Brienne. It's been real fun. It's been a real pleasure. Um, certainly not something I've ever done before, but I have really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for making it so easy and, and fun. Uh, you're a star. And thank you so much to everyone who's been part of the podcast series, uh, to Kendall Flutie today, to everyone else. Um, yeah, big thanks to you, Brienne, for being co-host. Uh, thank you for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen, like T.I. Hay Butler, our producer. Do follow Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what we do, rate and leave a review. It really helps. Inohora. You've been listening to Going Global, brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with New Zealand Trade and Enterprise. It was hosted by Brianne West and Simon Pound. It was produced by T.I. Hair Butler with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnerships editorial team of Elisa Rivera, Alice Webladall and Simon Day. If you want to know how New Zealand Trade and Enterprise can help you take your business to the world, visit getthere.nz today. From the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring. Brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.